Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program this evening, retooling Canada's infrastructure bank, the embattled federal agencies getting a new focus to help rebuild the pandemic-battered economy. Canadian small business has been hard hit, but it's still waiting for a new plan to help with rent relief. And our panel of commentators on the COVID-19 response, the party dynamics in Parliament these days, and more. But we will begin tonight with a new direction for Canada's infrastructure bank. We now have a better idea of how the Liberal government plans to help fuel a greener economic recovery in this country, as promised in the speech from the throne. The Prime Minister today announced a three-year, $10 billion infrastructure plan driven by the often criticized infrastructure bank. The spending will go to clean power development, storage and transmission uh, in underserved communities, uh, improved broadband, large-scale building retrofits, agriculture irrigation and zero emission buses. Our government is launching a $10 billion infrastructure plan to build stronger, healthier communities while helping Canadians get back to work. In fact, this plan alone will create about 60,000 jobs right across the country. Through the Canada Infrastructure Bank, this three-year growth plan will invest in everything from clean power, zero-emission buses and home retrofits, to broadband and irrigation infrastructure for farmers. This is a win-win. We are allocating significant um sums of money, significant levels of investment um, with respect to clean power, with respect to zero emission buses, with respect to making our cities cleaner because of uh, substantial building retrofits. All of those are consistent with um, a, an investment strategy that is designed to help Canada meet its, uh, its uh, greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, to build a cleaner and more prosperous economy uh, for the future. Catherine McKenna is the Federal Minister of Infrastructure. She joins me now. Minister McKenna, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Great to join you. Tell me how this $10 billion a three-year plan fits into your government's pledge in the speech from the throne to rebuild a greener, more inclusive uh, Canadian economy after the pandemic. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's all hands on deck right now. We're not just in a health crisis. We're in an economic crisis, and, and people are really uh, feeling uh, hurt by it. Uh, a lot of jobs have been lost. And so when we got the new head of the infrastructure bank, Michael Sabia, very well-respected business person, um, we had a discussion about how, you know, can we have a plan that's adapted for the times, which we need to create jobs in, in the short term. Um, and, of course, we need to align it with our broader objectives of growing the economy and also building a cleaner, uh, a low-carbon economy. And so that's what this plan is. So it's $10 billion invested in five sectors. And many of those sectors are things that we're thinking about during the pandemic. So take broadband. Uh, the investment in broadband uh, is designed to connect uh, almost a million people, three-quarters of a million Canadians. We know we need to do that. 
Public transit, people have focused a lot on the importance of public transit to get people to and from work as we reopen the economy. Uh, they're looking at investing in electric buses. Uh, clean power generation, we know we need uh, renewable power, clean power, uh, as well as transmission and storage. Uh, really important uh, for jobs now, but also for a low carbon future. Um, retrofit, so retrofitting our economy that creates good construction jobs. It also saves folks money. Um, and then there's a, another area that might be new to folks, which is uh, water irrigation. Water critical for our farmers, our ranchers in the Prairie Provinces. There's been a lot of interest in funding some really big projects that are going to make a difference there. So okay. these are investments that are critical uh, for the time we're in, creating jobs, um, but also critical to advance our longer-term goals, especially uh, tackling climate change. How, how did you come up with a figure of 60,000 jobs? Is, is there some formula that says... Uh, you know, you $10 billion gives you 60,000 jobs? Uh, well, what the bank's been doing, they've worked really hard on this plan, is going through sector by sector, consulting with experts, looking at, you know, when you do retrofits, who are you hiring? How does it work? You know, you're hiring construction workers, you're hiring planners, you have the businesses that are providing the supplies. They did that sector by sector uh, to get a quantum uh, of jobs. We think it's uh, realistic, and, and they're going to deliver on that. And I think that's really important because... Infrastructure is great. Uh, it's, it's important to our competitiveness. It's important to the quality of life. Uh, it also is one of the best ways to create jobs. I mean, these were target areas for investment. You just named them all uh, in big projects. How many projects have actually been selected? When will a job be created? Well, actually, if you're in Montreal now and you're watching the show, you would know about the REM uh, transit line. It's actually a really big project uh, creating thousands of jobs and it's being built right now. Um, it's also something that's going to make a real difference of lives of folks in Montreal because I know everyone believes <laughs> they need better public transit. Um, so there's a number of projects. They're also looking at uh, rail in the corridor. Uh, we've talked about that for decades. Uh, we need to get major projects uh, built and going. And so that's what this is all about. It's really looking at the opportunities, actually moving forward, but having a vision. Because I think you need to have a vision. It can't just be you know yeah. investments in random things. And so this will provide some certainty to the private sector. And some people may be wondering, well, why do you need a Canada Infrastructure Bank? The whole intent is to stretch taxpayer dollars. So they look at projects where you can bring in the private sector as a partner. So $1 can be $2 or $3 in infrastructure. And right, I'll tell but, but you that we have great infrastructure needs, so we need to be bringing in the private sector and we need to get things built. And, but to be clear, they only get involved if there's a return on investment for them. So if there's money to be made on the project, they're making it. Uh, well, look, we get the return on the investment, which is, for example, in the broadband, three quarters of a million more people who are connected to high-speed, uh, affordable broadband. That is critically important. Um, so the return is for Canadians in terms of actually improving their quality of life, including, uh, you know, having, you know, if you have access to broadband, you can run your business, you can homeschool your kid, uh, you can, uh, you know, connect to medical assistance. So these are really important investments that improve the lives of Canadians. But as infrastructure minister, I know there's only so much government money to go around. There's, that's just a reality. And the needs um, to build a more competitive future, to build the infrastructure, the good quality, high value infrastructure we need, we need to bring in the private sector. And right now, private sector, the money is going to other countries. Okay, let's look. Um, let's, we you, should bring it here and build more talk, and be more competitive. You mentioned how much money there is to go around. There's been $35 billion in the infrastructure bank to go around in the last three years. So far, only $4 billion of that has gone out the door. It's had some serious problems, as, as you know. I think 
Uh, there's been nine projects in the last three years, and you had to shake up the management team this spring and bring in Mr. Sabia. So I guess Canadians watching, and you heard it from opposition parties today, why should we have confidence that the bank's actually going to get anything built? Uh, I think you should have confidence because you have Michael Sabia at the helm of it. Uh, he was head of the Caisse de Dépôt uh, in Quebec. Uh, I think you can talk to about the government of Quebec, but also Quebecers to talk about, you know, they really think that he did a really great job in getting infrastructure built that creates jobs, improves the quality of life. Um, and so they've got a plan. And I think what's very critical is that there's a very clear plan, uh, a short-term plan, three years. There's a quantum of jobs, 60,000 jobs associated with it in areas that we know are real opportunities and so we're going to be moving forward and I think you're going to see a number of projects announced very shortly and so I think that that's what Canadians uh, look for that's what they expect that's certainly what I expect as infrastructure minister I've been focused in my job over the last few months approving thousands of projects so, that Mr. are creating Sa jobs across the country. Mr. Sabia did say today like he echoed that he says look we'll have stuff to talk about we'll have some announcements to make he predicts before the end of 2020. That sounds fairly ambitious, but we'll see. Um, look, some people would say there are lots of other projects that might be worthy of the bank's investment and will create jobs, but maybe they don't check all the, all the boxes on the government's green objectives. So are those, are those projects out of luck for any help from the infrastructure bank if they don't have this, this green component that falls into step with the, the government's direction for a, a post-pandemic economy? Uh, well, I mean, any project that, you know, that, that could be suitable will be considered by the bank. I think, though, the bank has laid out an agenda that's aligned with our government's agenda, uh, objectives. And it's not, just, it's not just moving to the clean economy, which uh, we know is worth trillions of dollars. Uh, and we need to be there if we're going to be competitive and also, quite frankly, tackle climate change. It's also about the digital economy. Uh, we know that we need to have folks connected. Even if it weren't in a pandemic, uh, we would need folks connected. I think it's become even more apparent. And look at the prairies, irrigation projects, food security, uh, our agri-food business, huge opportunities, huge job yeah. opportunities, economic opportunities for Canadians. So we focus on areas, and the bank is focused on areas that will uh, be suitable in the short term, so adjusting their focus. Um, but it's, they're still yeah. open for business to look at other opportunities. We've got about 30 seconds left, and you touched irrigation. Uh, Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, he's unveiled a, an irrigation project there, $4 billion to draw water from Lake Diefenbaker to irrigate 500,000 acres of land in the province. Uh, he's approached the infrastructure bank, but he's uh, saying now what he wants to know is, look, will I be offered a loan or a grant? What should he expect? How should he expect to be treated? Uh, well, I mean, the, the infrastructure bank looks at different financing models. It's, a, it's to bring in the private sector. So there has to be a return on the investment for the private sector uh, for it to be suitable. Uh, I know that the Premier is, is well aware of that, and I think there are real opportunities. And I think it's very positive step that the bank has shown that they're open to those opportunities right. in irrigation, which I think also the Premier of Alberta has talked about. I know it's important for Manitoba as well. This is about getting infrastructure built that will make a difference across okay. Canada. All right, Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time Great tonight. to talk to you. Bye. Well, one of the federal government's key COVID-19 relief programs expired overnight, and the government still hasn't said how it will replace it. Under the SECRA, the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program, the federal government paid 50% of the rents for businesses, while the landlord and tenant each paid 25%. But the program, well, it was complicated to say the least, and landlords had to agree to take part, and many did not. 
So what happens next? Laura Jones is the Executive Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She joins me from Vancouver this evening. Uh, Laura Jones, thanks for taking time to speak with me, first of all. The rent subsidy program has ended, still no replacement. And uh, many of the uh, people you represent face a new round of restrictions as the COVID-19 cases rise. Some are facing big increases in insurance premiums. So let's start there. Tell me uh, about the uncertainty those small businesses are feeling right now. Well, you know, it's hard to it's hard to even put in words the the stress that many small businesses across Canada are feeling. We only have about 30 percent of businesses who are back to normal revenues right now. Uh, only about 40 percent are back to normal staffing. And um, so things are far from normal on Main Street. And of course, there are several big bills um, that that businesses worry about. One of them is their wages and there's a wage subsidy um, in place. And the other one is is rent and uh, you know the rent uh, program just expired so and it's October 1st so it's a stressful day for a lot of businesses uh, across Canada today we hear you know the, the government keeps saying government representatives keep saying look we're we're aware that the program has expired help is coming uh, but we haven't seen it yet so what have you been told about uh, by the government about when a new program might be introduced well, you know, we've heard uh, the small business minister, we've heard the finance minister indicate that they understand that this is a problem and that um, some indication that maybe they're they're working on it, but we have nothing concrete yet. We're hopeful that there will be some new rent relief program that is better than the last program. We've certainly made some recommendations for how to improve uh, rent relief going forward and, and very hopeful that, that the government is listening. There's indications that they're listening, but of course you can't take hope to the bank. So we're still waiting um, for some kind of announcement. The parliamentary budget officer reported just a few days ago that the program helped some 120,000 small businesses, but it used just a little over half of the $3 billion in the budget set aside for the program by the government. Uh, so how would you assess uh, its, uh, its performance as a program? Uh, was it... Did, did it sort of work or was it a, an abject failure? Sort of work to, is an interesting way to way to put it. I think it helped some business owners um, and, and some landlords uh, bridge um, into recovery. But the challenge with it was that there was a deep unfairness that was kind of baked into it. And that was as a tenant, in order to access the help you needed, you needed your landlord to participate in the program. And in some cases, landlords, um, you know, weren't able to participate. They themselves had financial challenges or the paperwork obstacles were there um, or they didn't want to participate. Um, but in any case, what that meant is you could have, you know, a bakery on one side of the street who's doing just fine because their landlord was participating and they had help with rent and a bakery on the other side of the street who's on the verge of, of going under right now because they've had six months with no, now seven months with no rent relief. And that's really, really unfair. So that's one of the things that clearly needs to be fixed. I need to take the landlords out of the equation um, and moving forward with, with rent relief. All right. So is, is that the key thing, a, a sort of uh, a way to directly compensate uh, the tenant or find a way if the tenant, if it's going to be a rent subsidy, uh, give the money to the tenant and, and build in somehow an understanding that it goes to the landlord. Uh, but it's got to be through the tenant. 
Yeah, keep it simple. Have the relief go directly to the tenant. That obviously is very important. The other thing, there are two other things that I think are important. One would be that the program um, continue right through the fall and likely beyond for businesses who are really in bad shape. This month-to-month business, I mean, we've had monthly extensions of the rent program. The last one, the extension didn't, wasn't announced until well after September 1st. I mean, that's really problematic for businesses as they're trying to plan for their cash flow. So let's announce something that 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 is going to take us forward and really help bridge through recovery. And finally, I would say there are businesses that have been shut out of rent relief for um, seven months now, and that's just not fair. So finding a way to top them up and get them a little closer to where they would have been if they had had access to the original secret program, you know, those those three things would make for that. That's kind of what we're looking for as we go forward in rent relief. All right, Laura Jones. Well, apparently some relief is coming. Uh, not exactly sure when, but like you, we'll watch along as well and uh, we'll know more about it when it happens. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, Susan Smith is a liberal commentator. It's time for a panel of party commentators. She's with us tonight. So is Kate Harrison, conservative commentator, and Anne McGrath is a national director of the New Democratic Party. It's good to see you all. Uh, Susan, the prime minister unveiled a $10 billion three-year green infrastructure plan uh, led by the Federal Infrastructure Bank today, supposed to create 60,000 jobs of the one million the government's promising, uh, had promised in the speech from the throne. That bank has been uh, a big fail in the minds of a lot of people so far by almost any measure. So why should we feel confident about this plan unveiled today? Well, that's that's a good question, Peter, but I think uh, we can because there's a specific mandate now and there's a lot more direction. Uh, $10 billion, uh, $2 billion in agriculture, there's over $2 billion in broadband connecting businesses and homes, there's building infrastructure retrofits, and I'm forgetting the other area, oh, zero emissions, buses, and electric vehicles. Those are very tangible areas that government can focus on where uh, the, the communities, businesses, provinces uh, can participate, and I think that's something that you can see tangible results. So. They're very specific markers in the ground, and I think you can. I think we can feel confident that there'll be some progress finally. All right, Kate Harrison, uh, you're a conservative. You, I'm assuming, like the notion of private sector investment in this case being leveraged by public investment. So, what's wrong with this approach by the government to drive the pandemic recovery in Canada through the infrastructure bank? Yeah, there's been a lot of dollars allocated and not much by way of delivery, as you pointed out. Uh, The Infrastructure Bank has struggled to deliver any major program since it was founded um, five years ago. Uh, Certainly, uh, it is the type of structure that I think a lot of conservatives would like to see in terms of leveraging investment. It just hasn't materialized into any meaningful projects. Uh, You know, the, the commitment about broadband strikes me as one that has been long promised, including in government's past, and there has been very little tangible movement. So uh, a lot of uh, shiny numbers presented today with the CIB. They've struggled with delivery, and I'm not sure that there's been enough change to really warrant any shakeup in direction and and any further promise that they'd be able to deliver more than they haven't in the past. All right, Anne, what are your thoughts on this announcement today? Well, I think from the beginning, people were worried about the uh, uh, increasing privatization uh, that that the infrastructure bank represents. Certainly, the announcement today sounds lovely, uh, as so many of the announcements uh, have sounded. It sounds lovely. It sounds like great things. 
But so far, the infrastructure bank has failed to deliver on anything and has really just been a way of opening the door to more public money for private sector. All right, let's move on. to Susan, we're in a second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic now. Cases rising, small businesses such as restaurants looking at a new round of restrictions. And the federal government is looking at ways to continue supporting Canadians. Uh, I, I'm going to suggest there's far more scrutiny uh, on, the, on the federal government response as we head into the second wave because a lot of stuff was pushed out the door quickly in, in round one. So uh, how do you think the federal government needs to approach its role as we head into this second wave? What are you watching for? Well, I'm watching for a continuation, uh, a smart continuation of the kinds of supports that helped Canadians. You're right, Peter, things moved very, very quickly. The government stood up like it's never stood up before uh, in, in our history, putting together wage support programs, putting together business support uh, programs, student support programs, income support programs on a scale like we've never seen. Uh, it wasn't sustainable in the longer term, but the government has said through the throne speech that it's going to continue to help Canadians while it can. An increased level of scrutiny, that's a good thing. But we also know more now. We know, we know better how to do, put these programs in place. I don't think they can be there forever, but that's why you see revisions to the employment insurance program to make sure we still capture the people who are going to be hit by the pandemic, the second wave of the pandemic. You're right. The numbers are going up. We're going to see service businesses close. We're already seeing it in Quebec, mm-hmm. restaurants, bars. And those are vulnerable people from, an, from the employment scale of things. There's no benefits, no pension, nothing like that to keep people going. So it, I think it's critical that the government continue to have smart programs that make sense to be able okay. to help people in circumstances that are clearly beyond their control when it's a pandemic. Kate, where, what, what role do you think the federal government needs to take on here as we enter the second wave? Well, Susan's right that we do know more than we did back in March. And I think that that is why uh, a change in direction is needed. The, the status quo... Um, of, of trust that existed from Canadians at the end, onset of the pandemic when no one knew anything has evaporated. Uh, so we saw the government be nimble with support programs, which was good to see. Uh, people will start to question why the government can't be nimble about things like testing, for example, why the government can't be nimble in uh, getting PPE out to businesses in a timely manner. I think there is a much more critical eye being applied because we see governments around the world reacting, particularly when it comes to rapid testing, and we were slow. And people are right to question about why Canada is behind on that. Okay, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that the pandemic has really exposed a lot of the glaring inequalities in our society, and we've seen a real disproportionate impact on women, on racialized communities, um, uh, on, on people uh, who are who are you know already at the bottom end of the uh, of the income brackets, and so uh, I really would like to see us thinking about what kind of a society we want to have, and and if that and if this is going to be the way that we're going to proceed. So, for instance, long-term care homes were a big issue during the first wave. I'm not sure that we're going to see much of an improvement in, in this second wave. We had, the, the army had to be sent in the first time. Certainly nothing much has happened to improve the situation there. The workers there are still underpaid, overworked, and the conditions are still very, very, uh, very, very difficult for a lot of people in those, in those homes. And I think a lot of families are very worried about what's going to happen to their parents, what's going to happen to their mm-hmm. children as schools reopen. Uh, we still don't have a, 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 an effective national child care uh, program in this country. There's a lot still to do. And I worry that we're going to focus too much on pulling back and not enough on moving forward. Uh, and let me stay with Peter, you. I know Go ahead, Susan, quickly. I just want to say the one thing we have learned in this pandemic as well, or one of the things we've learned, is the ability for the feds and the province to cooperate and to get things done. 
So whether it comes to coordinating PPE ordering and getting it distributed, whether it comes to um, rapid vaccine uh, approval or testing that's just been approved this week, we've finally shown, and we, we haven't put to bed forever, sadly, I don't think, but we've shown right. that in circumstances, the feds and the province can get along to look after Canadians. And that, to me, yeah, has been a tremendous learning and a tremendous outcome out of the, the tragedy of the pandemic. Do we still feel that way, Kate? I mean, I'm, I mean, there's still that level of cooperation, but I'm not sure it's where it was uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. We now have provinces saying, look, send us the money and keep your hands out of health care. We'll take care of it ourselves. Some criticism about the government being slow to move ahead on the rapid testing. So... I, I mean, is, should that be a concern that these, if we see these cracks widen uh, uh, between the provinces and the federal government, that that then perhaps starts to affect the, the delivery of supports and uh, what Canadians need during the pandemic? Yeah, certainly. A tangible example I would point to is the conclusion of the uh, rent assistance program at the federal level. We're now seeing, uh, in some cases, municipalities and certainly provincial governments step up and directly support businesses who otherwise could have been helped out through that program. So uh, the provinces are stepping in to fill in the gaps that have been left behind by the government's conclusion of these programs. And the New Democrats have been successful in forcing Liberals to spend more on uh, their COVID-19 relief measures. That's been a win for Jagmeet Singh. I think most people... I would agree with that. And he says he may continue to prop up the minority government if he keeps getting what he wants. Uh, but have you done the calculation as the NDP on whether that will pay off at the polls when we do get an election or whether the credit for any of these programs and improvements will just go to the Liberals anyway? I think right now the most important thing is to make sure that the supports are there for people, particularly the most vulnerable, and that's what we should be focused on. With respect to what happens in a future election, we will obviously be uh, reminding Canadians of the role that we played and, and, and how important it was to have us there and how important it will be to have a larger presence of NDP in any future parliament. But for now, I think the real focus has to be on people who are worried, who are sick, uh, who don't know whether or not they're going to be able to pay their rent, don't know if they can get their kids back to school safely, you know, don't know what, if their parents uh, and grandparents will be safe in long-term care homes. I think that, that right now um, uh, is not the time to be thinking about the future, future elections in that sense. Kate Harrison, the Conservatives, have a new leader. He spent his first day in the Commons yesterday offering his alternative vision for uh, Canadians. But the spotlight's been less on, on Aaron O'Toole, I think, in the Conservatives. Now, mind you, he was in uh, isolation for uh, up until a couple of days ago. So, But it's been a, a lot about Jagmeet Singh as, as the power broker as uh, Parliament resumed here. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the NDP are going to have a difficult time finding contrast. And I think contrast is what wins campaigns. Uh, right now, you know, to Anne's point, they're, they're doing, they're, they feel they're doing the right thing by Canadians to, to work with the government and, and get these programs over the finish line. And I think that they can sell that to their base. Uh, I'm not sure that they can sell it to undecided voters or uh, red-orange switch voters who see the Liberal government, frankly, being the ones to take the credit and deliver on these programs. So uh, I think that there will, at some point, have to be a pivot for the NDP to be a little bit more uh, progressive, even more than they are in their policies, or start articulating that in a different way so that there is light between them and the Liberal Party. Uh, otherwise, I think they're delaying the inevitable, which is a similar election result to what we saw in 2019. Okay. Uh, Susan, let me finish on you. How do you see this relationship between the Liberal in the NDP in Parliament? Well, uh, an optimist uh, might say it's about doing what's best for Canadians. Uh, a, a cynic might say it's about avoiding election on the part of the NDP, but someone in the neutral position might say this is how minority parliaments are supposed to work. You're supposed to give your input. Uh, you're not supposed to oppose just the sake for a, a sake 
of opposing, you're supposed to be constructive, and this is what the NDP have, do, have been doing. And to Anne's point, they've been trying to look out, help the government look after Canadians. If they tweak and fine-tune and make legislation better, that's a good thing. And, and that puts the Conservatives and the, and the Bloc Québécois in a very difficult position. Because basically, Mr. O'Toole, whom people still don't know yet, has, has opposed, said he, he voted against the throne, or will not support the throne speech, which means um, they're not fighting, they're, they've voted against fighting the pandemic, they've voted against supports for businesses and people, they've been, voted against building back better, and they've voted against the other pillar, which was um, well, it's, uh, well, it's, 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 a more inclusive society. It's, it's, it, they, they say they're going to vote against throne speech, but they did. They unanimously supported, the House did, the... Uh, the new supports for uh, employment insurance and for, for sick leave in the house the other night. So, uh, I, mean, I do think that the block. I do think that the block and the conservatives made a mistake in coming out so quickly, uh, saying that they were just going to oppose the, the the throne speech, and it gave them no room to maneuver, no room to try and negotiate something uh, that would be uh, acceptable to to their base or their voters. How long has the government survived, Kate? Give like as long as the NDP's on side, uh, and that's that's a big question mark. I know, but. Uh, what, what are people thinking about an election now? We were thinking in the fall, still, are we back to the spring or maybe much longer than that? I, I think it has the potential to go much longer than that. And, and here's why. If we look at the numbers from COVID this past spring, uh, that it, it, we had a, a very high caseload. We find ourselves in the same situation in 2021. I think the government okay. rightly would face a lot of criticism over the decision to go to the polls at the height of a pandemic. Uh, the NDP don't really want to force the issue right now. They don't have the resources to go to an election. So I think it's possible we could be looking at maybe not a full mandate, but, but pretty darn close. Okay, uh, I'm going to have to leave it on that. Uh, short for time, I'll get I'll get uh, election outlook ideas from, from Ann and Susan the next time. But uh, thank you you all for your time today. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics here on CPAC. From all of us at CPAC, thanks very much for watching, and I'll see you next time.